Well, thank you, Stephen and Craig, for doing both your uh, respective jobs, unlike what I tried to give you. I must admit, I was at a banquet last night. I was at a wedding till quite uh, late, which means I did not have my mandatory 9pm Saturday preacher's bedtime. Now, this story was about a couple of banquets, and I don't think we often in our society go to that many banquets anymore, but I do think we have a lot of dinners and we sit around the table. So I'm one of five, I think I've told you, one of five siblings, and growing up, dinner at our house was loud. Uh, it lacked politeness. Often I got kicked under the table by a sibling. Uh, there was not much etiquette, etiquette, much to my parents' dismay. But I remember as a kid, I used to go to my friend's house and her family, they were quite different. Uh, they were very polite. They were very restrained. There was no yelling. It was amazing. Uh, and one day, though, I was at my friend's house for dinner and I became aware, I wasn't privy to it, but something had gone down before dinner. You know when you hear from the other room, from the kitchen, the whispers, the, oh, what are you doing? But I wasn't aware what was going on. Anyway, I wondered what would happen as we came to the dinner table to sit down. And it was interesting. Unlike my family, where we might have chucked a dinner roll at one another, there was no acknowledging it at this dinner table. They had this facade of politeness on, I think for me, their guest, Lots of forced smiles like these ones, an awkward small talk, but you could tell by those sus sort of daggered looks uh, across the table and the way that some of the family members weren't actually eating, they were just pushing the peas from one side of the plate to the other, uh, that something had happened. And it felt like a particularly painfully long dinner. Now I wonder if you've ever been at one like that where there's some tension at the table. Now, I tell this story because today's reading has, well, I said the story of two meals, but really it's the story of three meals, but we'll focus on two, the great banquet and the dinner party that Jesus is at. So Jesus is at this dinner party at one of the prominent Pharisees' houses where he tells this, the parable. And there's a bit of a juxtaposition here between the two because the first banquet that Jesus is at, he's, it's uncomfortable. It's full of tension at the table. People are worried about their status and their politeness. Jesus is even asking them questions, trying to get them to kind of have some conflict with him, but they're silent, just trying to be polite, following the rules of etiquette of their time, but it is tense. And you can feel that something is bubbling under the surface. And it's at this meal that Jesus decides to tell a parable that teaches about the kingdom of God by telling the story of another meal. This second meal, the parable of the great banquet, is messier. Some people deny an invite, others don't. There is an array of people who are invited to join the meal, all with shared status and importance to the uh, master who's invited them along. So I think it's important for us to take a look at, number one, why are these two different meals taking place? So at the, G, at the dinner that Jesus is invited to attend at the Pharisee's home, it's about status. He's invited people along, so there's that quid pro quo, if you will. I invite you along, you invite me along, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. There's places that people sit at the table based on their honour. And then there's the parable of the great banquet. And it's hosted just because the master, the banquet holder, wants to bless and spend time with his guests and to, fulfill, to fill his house, as it says in verse 23. The other thing is, who's invited to the dinners? 
Well, the dinner that Jesus is invited to at this prominent Pharisee's house, we see that it's probably just the religious elite. We actually see that this man who has um, a disability, who needs healing, comes before them and Jesus heals him, but he's not even welcome to stay at the banquet. He has to leave. Whereas we see that at the great banquet, anyone and everybody is invited. The servant of the master goes out to invite all of those of all different levels of status and wealth, social standing, ability. Now, I'd love us to shift, though, to see how those invited to the great banquet respond to the invitation. So first we have the elite people who are in there. We know they're elite because they're in the centre of the city. And uh, they live close to the centre, but also that means they probably have uh, the means to buy property and things there. But we also see the excuses that they make. They point to them probably being landowners. Anyway, we see that the servant of the banquet holder invites them to the great banquet, yet they say they can't come because they have things on. And to be quite fair, they're kind of reasonable excuses. Imagine that you were settling on a house that day. You'd obviously need to go to the house's settlement and have to politely decline the banquet. Say you'd just been married the day before. You'd probably also say, oh, I better spend time with my new spouse rather than the neighbour who's invited me over. Or you're in the middle of a business deal. Or you're just about to close. You'd likely want to see that through. Obviously, the banquet thrower was quite upset and angry. He'd prepared this big meal and offered this hospitality and they had denied it. But he also understood that they had free will and so he moved on to invite more and more people, mainly the lame, the poor, the blind and the crippled, but also those outside of the city walls entirely. Now, of course, the parables of Jesus are always teaching us through stories about what the kingdom of God is like. So we know that the kingdom of God, both as it is now as we're experiencing it and what is to come, will be absolutely full of all of those that the world says aren't invited along who are less desirable. But at God's table, in God's kingdom, they are welcome and they are seen as equal just as honoured as everybody else at the table because they have accepted the invitation that God has made. And while that is very much a key theme of today's reading, um, we are actually reading from a big chunk of scripture, so we can't cover it all. So I want you uh, to be mindful that that is a key theme, but I, we're going to focus on something a little bit different today. Today I want us to really focus in on those excuses of the listed uh, invitees to the banquet. Because when I read these excuses, they come across as quite important ones made as to why the people can't make it to the great banquet, why they can't make it to spend time with God. And I think I can see a lot of parallels between those excuses and how we are in our context here at BNBC and in our little pocket of the world and probably with my own life as well. Our church and our little pocket of the world that God has placed us in is full of people with really important responsibilities. Whether they are important responsibilities in and to your families, at work, at school, 
maybe in your community, and for many of us, important responsibilities right here at church. And so when Jesus invites us to spend time with him, to come to his banquet in quality time and discipleship, we actually have a long list of very important things that are demanding our time. When Jesus says to us, come, pull up a seat at the table with me and spend time with me, abide in me, we can often say, not right now, Jesus. I've got to put in a few extra hours at work or on that school project. No, I've really got to help my in-laws today. Sorry, Jesus, sometime later, because you've blessed me with a house and I really need to do some maintenance on it. Or no, I really need to take on that one extra task at church. If I don't put my hand up, who will? And we can easily find ourselves, whether it's intentional or not, telling God to wait. Just wait until we finish that other important, urgent thing. Well, a couple of months ago, you might have remembered Pastor Philip preached a message from James where he encouraged us to say no to good things so that we could say yes to the best things. And that's really stuck with me. I liked that little saying. And I think that this parable of the great banquet reminds us that the very best thing is a relationship with God in God's kingdom. And that we are reminded to make time to sit at God's table and allow God to be at the very centre of our lives. That's not me saying that I want everybody to abandon your work, your family, your community, your church. I don't think that's wise. I don't think that's responsible. And I don't think that God would have us do that. But we can't let those really important things that God has blessed us with and given us to do, monopolise our time, monopolise our energy and our gifts and our thoughts and our strengths in a way that starves us of time and relationship with God first and foremost. I think the biggest temptation for all busy and successful people is something called someday syndrome. Now, I read this in a post from a C.S. Lewis blog from a really successful attorney and he said that the narrative of someday syndrome in our heads looks a bit like this. Someday I'll have accomplished my goals and have quality time to spend with the Lord. Someday I will have raised my family and I will have time to devote to the Lord. Someday I will finish school or that uni degree or that big work project or even retire and I'll be able to enjoy properly and more profoundly, the grace and the spiritual life. But the problem is, someday never comes. Without an active decision in the present moment to spend time with God in prayer, in study, in reflection and worship, God leads us to those things. It's just not going to happen. I want us to shift back for a moment into the text today because I think it's really important for us to think about who it is that Jesus is telling this parable to. He's sitting at a table with the religious elite 
the Pharisees who are really, really good at doing that religious stuff that God asked them to do. And so they assumed that they were included in the kingdom of God. Jesus' audience for this parable is really telling to us. And it makes us ask the question, how often are our excuses as to why we can't spend time with God, the fact that we're actually doing things and being really busy for God? Now, I've got to confess that without proper accountability and intention, I can be really terrible in this area. I can often let ministry and doing things for God crowd me out and therefore use it as an excuse for why I can't just spend that quiet time intentionally with God. And let me tell you, any time this happens, it's an absolute recipe for failure. Because what I end up doing and what we end up doing is serving and giving from a place that is absolutely dry and it is motivated by all the wrong things. Instead of being fueled for all the important things God has called us to by God's holy and empowering and sustaining spirit, we start to try to do things on our own strength and we dry out pretty quickly and we can burn out. I'm going to read from you a little excerpt from a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And some of you might have read it. It says, is doing things for God wrong? No, of course not. But work for God that is not nourished by a deep interior life with God will eventually be contaminated by other things such as ego, power, needing approval from others and buying into the wrong ideas of success and the mistaken belief that we can't fail. Sounds a little bit like the Pharisees, doesn't it? The quote continues, When we work for God because of these things, our experience of the gospel often falls off centre. We become human doings instead of human beings. Our experience of worth and validation gradually shifts from God's unconditional love for us in Christ to our works and our performance. The joy of Christ can gradually disappear from us. Our activity for God can only properly flow from a life with God. We cannot give what we do not possess. Doing for God in a way that is proportionate to our being with God is actually the only pathway to a pure heart and seeing God. I'm going to repeat that final part for you while I put Matthew 5.8 from the Beatitudes up on the screen. Our activity for God can only properly flow from a life with God. We cannot give what we do not possess. Doing for God in a way that is proportionate to our being with God is the only pathway to a pure heart and seeing God. This is the hard truth that every Christian believer has to face. Powerful contributions to the advancement of the kingdom of God through things like evangelism, good deeds, in the name of Christ, will never, they're good, but they will never 
substitute for a personal relationship with Jesus. It is by Jesus' grace and God's grace that we have that invitation. So you cannot have the former without the latter. Or put simply, we're created to be human beings, not human doings. The important distinction here is we are never invited to do things for God. We are invited to be with God so that we can do things with God. It's a partnership. So maybe you are like me or like the Pharisees in this story and doing for God gets in the way sometimes of you being with God. Maybe you're more like the excuse makers in the parable and it's something else important in your life, your family or your work or community commitments that pulls you away from intentional time with God. Remember, these important things are not bad. They just can't become the main thing. They can't become the centre that is reserved for God. So I invite you to stop what you are doing, to look at the very good excuses you might make and to abide with God this week and ongoing. Let that inward reality of love for God and absorption in what God is doing be the centre of your life. Let it transform every part of you. The Christian journey is one of formation and sanctification, only possible when we make the commitment to pull up a seat at God's table, to take on all of that love, all of that grace and all of that sacrifice that Jesus has put down for us, to sit at that table and eat from the provision of God's spiritual nourishment every single day. I invite you to do what you need to make this a priority in your life. If that is seeking accountability, communicating with others the need, maybe you have to cut something out, or maybe you're a person that needs to take something up, like a spiritual discipline or practice that draws you into God. I encourage you to ask for help from others and from God to pray. And whatever it is, be intentional and actionate. And ask the Holy Spirit to be your guide and sustainer to help you. Jesus uses the parable of the great banquet to expose the excuses that people give for not accepting his invitation to be with him in the kingdom of God. The kingdom that is right now here breaking through and the kingdom that is to come. So I want to say it to you all very clearly this morning. Jesus is inviting you to the banquet to pull up a seat, to come and abide in him. Are you going to take your seat at the table?